So we have some new people. Um, what did they put this on there? This is called a knowledge class. So you're supposed to learn stuff. It's not a skill class. You're not supposed to get better at anything. And it's not inspirational, so I'm not responsible for your feelings. Just to impart knowledge. That's it. Okay, this is, class is called Tanya class, which means that we are studying the Tanya. Um, because I have tremendous amount of compassion for people who are suffering, namely myself, and I don't like teaching the same thing over and over and over again. Many years ago when we started teaching the Tanya class, I made the decision that um, we're just gonna keep going and the students that come in the middle will have to you know, pick up in the middle. So I don't know how many years ago it was we started chapter one, but we're now at chapter 18. Probably 18 years ago. What? It was not 18 years ago. I have not been teaching my note for 18 years. Um, but it's not a bad estimate. Okay, so um, what I usually do, um, because again, as I said, being compassionate for people who are suffering, there's also the students and... Um, we need to do some introductions. The introductions need to cover some um, three basic points, um, but because most of the people have been already been here in one of these introductory classes, I don't want to repeat everything for them. So we have to figure out a way to do the introductions where we cover the information needs to be covered while making it um, not boring for people who've heard this before. Or not too boring. So the introductions have to cover three basic points. Number one, what is Hasidus? Because Tanya is a work of Hasidus. So it's important when studying a work to understand kind of what genre within Torah it is so you approach it correctly. Um, number two, specifically background about the Tanya as a work. Um, and then three, where are we holding in Tanya? What ideas have we covered? Obviously, I'm not going to go over everything, but what ideas have we covered that are necessary to understand the context for the chapter that we're going to begin in, chapter 18? Okay. Um, now, as Divine Providence, as Shkach Brothers would have it, chapter 18 is actually a kind of beginning of Tanya. Um, the work itself is divided into kind of different sections, and um, even, even though he doesn't say this is a new section, this is a new section, um, but in a sense, the first 17 chapters is one kind of thing, and then chapters 18 through 25 is a second thing. So if you had to jump in in the middle, um, chapter 18 is a good place. Also, chapter 26, if you're thinking of coming back, um, also begins something new. So, Okay, um, so what we're going to do is we're going to go over those three ideas <coughs> a little bit faster than I did last time, because most of the people have heard them. And maybe put a slightly different spin on them. Um, the same, the same thing can be seen from different angles. Okay. So, Hasidus um, can be understood as a particular way of approaching Judaism. Um, and it's better to think of Hasidus rather than being a series of books or ideas, rather as an approach. Okay. Um, the third, sorry, this, the, the sixth Chabad Rebbe, um, 
Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson, whose picture is on the bottom right over there. It used to be behind me, it's easier to point to. So he wrote um, a work, we have it here actually, um, um, explaining what Hasidus is in much more um, um, beginner level um, terminology and descriptions, in the sense that we're not presupposing any kind of background knowledge. And what he does in, in one of these works is he explains that there are different kind of approaches to Judaism. Um, and if we think broadly speaking, we can kind of first divide Judaism into two basic levels. One is compliance with the expectations of halacha, of Jewish law. In other words, God commanded us certain commandments, thou shalt, thou shalt not, they have a lot of details, and we have to comply with those, right? Um, and that's kind of one aspect of looking at Judaism, was called by some of the classic sources, the duties of our limbs, the obligations of our behavior towards God. Um, and then there's a whole other dimension, which we can think about as what was called by those same sources, or duties of the heart, um, which can be more broadly understood as duties of the psyche, of their inner obligations towards God. And different approaches to Judaism will vary as to how we understand what is the proper way to motivate us to comply with the duties of our limbs, to actually comply with the mitzvahs, and also what really we should be striving for and developing in the duties of our hearts, in those kind of psychological, mental obligations we have towards God. And so what he describes there is that if we think about developing ourselves spiritually, religiously, and meeting those obligations we have towards God, um, both in terms of our attitude towards keeping the halacha and more, and especially growing in that kind of mental, spiritual, psychological state, there's, broadly speaking, kind of three approaches. He labels one approach the approach of Musr, um, the second approach he labels the approach of Chakira. I'm going to use the Hebrew words, and I'm, the reason I'm going to use the Hebrew words is because um, they're kind of like technical terms. In a, in a second, I'll go and explain the actual meanings of these words. Um, and the third he calls the approach of Chassidus. Okay. Now, Musr um, comes, f- Musr is a Hebrew word which means instruction, or it can understood to mean um, even rebuke correction, guidance, even broadly, education. Um, and so um, the Torah, broadly speaking, can be called Musr. Um, there's actually a verse which it says that the, the Torah is the Musr that we receive from our, 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 our forebearers. So obviously, if I just give you a literal translation of the word, it doesn't really help describe what he thinks of this discipline is. So I, I think it's easier to kind of just treat it as a proper noun. There's this approach that he calls Musr. And the approach of Musr is centered around um, dealing with negativity. There are things that are negative, there are things that are evil, and the approach is to, to find ways to remove the evil, the negativity in our lives. I'm gonna come back and, and elaborate on that a little bit. Then there's this second approach we call chakir. Chakir comes from the Hebrew, is, is the Hebrew word for investigation. Um, ches, yud, oh no, Ches, kuf, yud, resh, hey. So, for instance, in modern Hebrew, a choker is an investigator in the police department, uh, investigations, a chakira, right? It's, it's used also for the word to refer to Jewish philosophy. 
Um, but he is using this term to describe a discipline where the goal is to try to develop a greater appreciation of spirituality for its own sake. In other words, kind of a theological inquiry into the ultimate truths of God, of spirituality, as an end in and of itself. Okay. And again, I'm going to come back and describe a little bit what that is. And then the last approach is called Hasidus. Um, and in order to explain Hasidus and how Hasidus is a unique approach, it, you have to kind of understand the first two approaches. So <coughs> there's kind of a basic um, view, I think, you could put on a human being that I'll broadly call a religious point of view. And I'm using that word broadly in the sense that I don't mean specifically Jewish. I mean religious people tend to think this way about human beings. Human beings from a religious point of view, have a strong tendency towards evil. Now, the exact theology and how you understand that obviously varies from religion to religion, within a religion, different ways of thinking about that. But the idea is that there is such a thing as a tendency towards evil. It really does exist in people. Um, and that is something that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with. Okay? Conversely, um, a religious point of view also has the notion that there is something good about people, something redeemable, something um, um, positive, okay? that that needs to be cultivated, that needs to be um, redeemed, that needs to be saved. There's different ways of, of getting at this. Okay? This is a very broad. Now, there's so many different things you can do with that. You can you know, not necessarily take that in a very universalist way. Obviously, there's some people, some religions that think that that's only true about a certain select group of people. But there is this idea that they're really, a, a person is not, cannot really understood as basically everybody is good or basically, every, or basically people are bad. The idea is that no, there really is a tendency towards bad and towards evil and there's a tendency towards um, good or possibility for good. Um, and moreover, and this is gonna be, I think, very important, this should not be understood as not the same thing as um, mental health issues. And sometimes people do things which are negative because they suffer mental health issues. Um, and this should be understood as an independent um, issue. Um, somebody can be very mentally healthy and still be evil, and someone can be suffering from very serious mental health issues and even do things which are quite horrible, um, but they deserve our compassion because there's something not functioning properly in the cognitive or whatever. Right? So it just it shouldn't be equated. So now the question is, is my basic orientation to my religious life, looking at that evil, whatever that is, that's within myself, however I understand, however it comes from, and my goal is to limit it, to um, eradicate it if possible, right? In other words, the idea is that the success of the religious life is to free myself or limit myself as much as possible from the tendency towards evil, right? Anything that broadly fits under that description would be, would be something that he would call a Musser approach. Okay? Um, there's a... a <clears throat> now, within Musser, you, you could approach that in a more positive way. In other words, you can be very harsh and, ooh, evil is bad and evil is bad and we need to not be evil because evil is bad. Um, I think we all understand that there's a limit to how effective that particular approach can be, right? 
So more sophisticated approaches to Musa are not entirely negative in their feel, even though the goal is around the negativity. In fact, one of the most successful approaches to Musa is to focus on the difference between a human being and an animal. Um, in the Torah, it says that a human being was created in the image of God. And so the idea is that it is unbecoming, it is unworthy for a person not to live up to that potential that's implied by being created in the image of God. And so to strive not to debase oneself and live as an animal, but rather to live a life that one could be proud of as a human being created in the image of God. And that can be very positive in its feel and the way you think about it, but still it's centered around the fact that, you know, this danger um, is lurking that you might, you know, debase yourself and live um, as an animal. You might live in a kind of this evil way, rejecting these, these truths of what a human being is supposed to be. So again, it doesn't, when I say negativity, it doesn't have to feel harsh and brittle and abrasive and aggressive. Like that's not necessarily the defining quality of a Musa approach. What's the defining quality of a Musa approach is that it's saying we as human beings suffer from a tendency towards evil. We have to acknowledge that. We have to grapple with that. We have to face that. Um, and we can put a very positive spin on We can make, find that very meaningful. That would be a Musa approach. Um, does that make sense to people? Do anyone have questions on that? Okay, what would be, the Chakira approach would be entirely the opposite. The Chakira approach would be to say that the kind of religious life is centered around having a greater connection to the truth, to spirituality, to holiness, um, and that it's not curtailing or freeing oneself of evil is not really in and of itself a successful religious life. It's maybe a necessary precursor, okay? Um, you know, the, the, idea is that, the idea is that getting through life, not succumbing to the temptation to evil is not a success. It's just, to put it this way, it's a lack of failure. Real success would mean actually achieving something um, transcendent, something supernal, something that goes beyond the... Um, the, the, the physical and temporal lives that we live. So to take a very simple example, you see the contrast. Let's take the idea um, of um, cruelty versus compassion, okay? So the Muster approach would say that human beings have um, a tendency towards cruelty, that is bad, and compassion is something noble and something that's in the image of God and cruelty is, is the antithesis of that. And so we need to be aware of our tendency towards cruelty. We need to um, take safeguards against it and we need to cultivate compassion and free ourselves as much as possible from cruelty. And if we do that, then we have succeeded as, in that kind of religious life and religious endeavor. And then we should obviously approach how we then treat our approach to halacha within ourselves and other people from that lens. That would be kind of a Musa approach. How would the Chakira approach look at the question of cruelty versus compassion? And it would say something like this, that somebody who is cruel can't be compassionate. And being compassionate means the ability to be out, see the value beyond yourself. Someone who cannot live their mortal life, seeing value in others outside themselves, is not a fitting vessel to connect to things that have transcendent eternal value. 
Someone who can only see the value in terms of how something affects me, how something enhances me, how something improves me, is not able to appreciate something like the truth of God, um, the truth of, of the Torah, whatever this is. And so in order to be the kind of person who truly can um, know Hashem, you have to be a compassionate person. And obviously you can't be a compassionate person if you're cruel. Right? So it's not that cruelty is bad per se and compassion is good per se and that's what we're dealing with. It's saying like, if that's the issue that's bothering you, you're kind of being held back from this deeper truth because you're, you're too myopic, you're too self-centered. And you need a certain degree of selflessness, a certain degree of being able to transcend your own perspective in order to be able to connect to these higher spiritual truths, to really engage in real spiritual inquiry and, and grow in that way. It's a totally different approach. So you can almost say that where the Musar person feels that they've succeeded, the Chakira person feels that they're just beginning. Does that, does that kind of make sense, the difference in these two approaches? It's not saying, now obviously when you start getting into techniques and practices, obviously there can be differences and overlap, but in the basic attitude, I think is where you see the, the clearest distinction. Okay, so then what's Hasidus? So a basic idea that you will find pretty consistently in Jewish thought, um, and there's variations on this, is that the source of all evil has to do with being physical. In other words, I'm not going to say that physicality is per se evil, but the fact that we have the tendency towards evil um, is connected or... Um, correlated with our physical existence. So a soul free of a body doesn't have to deal with the problems of evil. Only an embodied soul who had a soul living in the physical world has a Yetzirah, as the has to deal with the problems of evil. So this creates a, this kind of interesting um, split where we tend to think of the physical as the source of the problem. And again, from the Muslim perspective, dealing with that problem successfully is the goal. Right? And from the Chakir perspective, freeing yourself of that problem allows you then to go on that kind of quest to, to get a deeper appreciation of spirituality for its own, its own terms. So you have this kind of orientation that the, that which is more devoid of the physical is better. So a soul free from the body is more ideal. An embodied soul has problems and struggles and difficulties. Um, and so you have this kind of tension between the physical and the spiritual. The perspective of Hasidus would be like this, that at the end of the day, the physical and the spiritual are both creations of God and God is one and God is indivisible. Therefore, a life centered around the dichotomy or the split between the physical and the spiritual, that the physical needs to be curtailed or rejected or, or escaped or something like that, and the spiritual has value independently in and of itself, is covering over a deeper truth of God. And so a real connection to God is found when a person um, is able to integrate the physical and the spiritual together. Um, in other words, that physicality, when it becomes a vehicle to convey spirituality, is actually a source of goodness. And spirituality that is able to successfully be embodied in physicality is more ideal, is more perfect, is more whole than a spirituality that's free of physicality. So to put this in very concrete terms, we would say like this. A body which properly conveys the soul is itself a source of holiness. 
a soul which is successfully embodied without compromising itself is on a higher level than a soul free of a body. And so this idea of bringing these two things and integrating them. Now, obviously, and what Chassidus would say is that there needs to be some degree of curtailing the evil tendencies as the most approach and appreciation for spirituality on its own terms in order for this kind of approach of Chassidus to make sense. And the key that allows this approach to work is that inside every Jew, they have a godly soul. And that godly soul is what enables them to bring together these kind of elements of the physical and the spiritual, which tend, one has a tendency towards negativity, towards evil, and the other one has a tendency towards spirituality and positivity. The godliness within the soul is what a person needs to tap into to be able to bring those two things together in a harmonious way. And, you know, and similarly, like if you have like two things and you try to attach them, you need something, whether it's a screw or glue to hold them together. So by getting in touch with the inner godliness within the person, they can integrate their soul and their body, their spirituality, their physicality, and live out a kind of unity of God in their own life, in their own community, and ultimately in the world, which is the coming of Mashiach. Okay? So that means that Hasidus has to entail some aspects of curtailing the negativity of the physical. It has to entail some aspects of appreciating the intrinsic value and beauty of the spiritual. But the real thing that Hasidus offers is tapping into this third thing, the kind of the oneness of God that we all have access to that kind of brings it all together. Okay? And, that's, and not every approach um, to Judaism has that view. Um, some people are just perfectly fine approaching things from the Musa perspective or from the Chakira perspective. But Hasidus has this kind of unique approach. Okay? And so Hasidus very much is about, is about bringing that, tapping into that kind of thing in the soul. Now, the Tanya specifically um, was written... Um, as a substitute for private um, guidance on this matter. In other words, the traditional way was that someone that wanted to approach life from a Hasidic point of view would come to a Hasidic master, a Rebbe, someone who, who um, has from both their own mastery of this and from the innate connection of souls, the ability to guide somebody in where did you get stuck along the way in this process, what's not working, how to fix that. Um, and, and that's a whole different, you know, how, how they would go about doing that. And the Tanya was written to substitute the private audience. Okay? Um, the author writes in the introdu- introduction that there's just too many people, and so I'm writing the book as a substitute. Now, obviously, I, I think we all know from our own life in any area where we try to grow, um, a book is not a substitute for a living guide or mentor, right? Okay. So... One thing that's very key is that when the Altar wrote the Tanya, he made it very clear in his introduction that the Tanya is meant to be more of a curriculum for personal guidance with a mentor rather than an actual substitute. In other words, what he says is that people that don't really understand the book should have mentors. You know, the Altar educated a bunch of people. And so now all of my, kind of my, my, my program is laid out and now somebody else can study it with you and guide you. Okay? So it's very important to understand that the Tanya is, the Tanya is written um, not as a book of interesting ideas or, guide, or, 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 or inspiring thoughts, but actually really like a structured program. Okay? And it's also written in such a way 
that it's meant to be accompanied with just like we have the written Torah and there's an oral Torah, with an oral Torah with living teachers, teachers who have lived this, who have practices, who receive from other living teachers, um, and can help bring it to, to life and, and, and help uh, make it understand what it actually means. The other thing to understand is because it's dealing with, it, it's, a, it's a program, it, ha- it deals in things in the ideal. Okay, this is very important. Um, if we were to have a discussion, I'll talk about something else, nothing to do with religion. If I were to say, well, let's have a discussion about um, parenting or marriage. Okay? There's an immediate problem, which is we all know that any real life situation is incredibly nuanced and complicated. Nothing that is ever said in the abstract actually is going to apply to, a very specific, to an individual circumstance. So one can make the argument, we shouldn't say anything and we should just like, not talk about it. And when like an actual couple or actual parents have a problem, then you know we'll deal with that then. I mean that seems rather foolish. Um, so then, what would be the right approach? I mean, pretending that everybody fits into neat categories and 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 everybody lives out the script as it is in the ideal is also a little bit foolish. So the the right way to kind of think about it is is, is like this: is that you have a kind of a, a, a guiding principle that you can work off of. So for instance, you say, for instance, like um, we understand like in, in, a, in a marriage that there's two different people and each person has their own point of view. And we can talk about that idea in the abstract and understand what that means. And then the more you understand that in the abstract, the more you have something to work off of and measure against when looking at your own individual circumstances or a mentor or a guide, right? That, that's kind of how that works. And so it's important to understand that the Tanya is written in a way that it's presenting things in a very idealized form. I don't mean ideal in the sense that it's the best. I mean, even the discussions of evil are very idealized. It's like, this is evil in the, in the clearest sense. And then what you have to do is say, okay, well, this is what it is conceptually, right? What does that actually mean? How does that play out practically? in a person's life, okay? Um, and so there's this kind of, um, you know, on a practical level, there's the interplay between the person studying the Tanya, the person, the Tanya itself, and then the person teaching them Tanya, the person mentoring them in the Tanya. And there's a kind of negotiation to figure out how to actually turn that into something that is practical um, and can be implemented into their life. Now, that means that a class only gets you so far, why? Because in a class, even though we have a text and we have students, we have a teacher, right? The problem is we have many different students, right? And the teacher only has a limited knowledge of the students, right? So that means we're kind of doing half of the project. What we're doing is trying to get some sense of what the Tanya means, both in the ideal and in the practical. But to actually bring it down to like, really what am I, the individual, supposed to take from this particular idea that we're learning, that's already something that has outside the context of the class because I don't know you. Right? And that's kind of a personal one-on-one type of a thing. Um, so that's the context which the time is written, is to take this idea of tapping into the soul and living this kind of integrated life where the physical, even how though has a tendency towards evil, and the spiritual, which has its own intrinsic value, to see that the real ultimate is for them to be united and connected in a healthy, proper way by tapping into the soul and the, the abilities that the soul provides, right? It's a it's a it's a, it's 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 a a program for how to approach that, um, but it needs to be properly navigated. Okay, so that takes care of the first two things: what is Chassidus and what is the Tanya, 
and hopefully from a different angle than the last time I gave the introduction. Okay, now what we need to do is we need to summarize 17 chapters of Tanya. Good? Okay. <clears throat> so, in order to do that, we need to understand what is specifically the issue, the concrete issue, that the Alter Rebbe feels that you need guidance on, right? So there's the general Hasidic approach. Um, and contrary to the propaganda that people might tell you, Tanya does not give you the Hasidic approach to everything. It gives you the Hasidic approach to basically one specific issue. And the specific issue is like this. As Jews, we have, as I mentioned before, we have the commandments that we have to follow. What God commanded us, the things you're supposed to do, things you're not supposed to do. In order to keep the commandments, you need two things. You need the ability to keep the commandments and you need the motivation to keep the commandments. The ability can be subdivided into many things. For instance, if I don't have access to tefillin, I cannot do the mitzvah putting on tefillin, right? If you do not have access to candles, you cannot light Shabbos candles, right? There's the ability to actually, if I don't know how to put on the tefillin, I can't do the mitzvah, right? Um, if you don't know when to light Shabbos candles, you start lighting candles Wednesday afternoon, right? You didn't do the mitzvah, right? So there is, you know, access, knowledge, right? All these different things can go into, into that. One of the things that goes into, in, into that is, um, which is why children are not obligated to mitzvahs, is the ability to be responsible for your own behavior, right? Um, do we expect a child to be able to take care of themselves? No, right? We don't, we don't think that they have the ability to regulate their behavior to that degree, right? So one of the things a person needs is that kind of ability to regulate their behavior, right? Because if you, if you know, if I know how to put on tefillin, I have access to tefillin, and I even believe that putting on tefillin is important, for we'll get to in a second, if I don't have the ability to regulate my behavior, I might not actually get the tefillin put on, no fault of my own, right? Which is why a small child is not obligated to mitzvahs, okay? <clears throat> so that's one whole thing, right? Do you have the ability? Do you have access? Do you have the knowledge? Do you have the maturity to regulate yourself? Okay. But then you also need motivation. For instance, what if a person doesn't really believe in God? God forbid. Or a person doesn't believe that the Torah is real. Or a person doesn't believe that the traditional understanding through the oral Torah is the proper understanding of God's intent, right? Or the orthodox understanding of the oral Torah is God's intent, right? Those, lacks, those, those, those lack of beliefs will obviously mean that a person doesn't have the motivation to keep the halacha. Um, or it could be that a person um, might believe all of those things and theologically think that they still not, doesn't mean that just because God commanded doesn't mean I have to listen to God. You know, many people have, you know, many people believe that somebody made the rules doesn't mean that they think they have to keep the rules, right? A person may even be angry with God, right? There's the stories of that, right? So there's the motivational question. Why should I keep? Why should I do these things? Why should I abstain from these behaviors? Okay. So which problem is the Alter Rebbe going to try to address in Tanya? The problem of the ability to do the mitzvahs, which includes access, knowledge, the maturity to regulate your behavior, or is he going to be dealing with the motivation of why should I want to do the mitzvahs? Motivation. So in the motivation category, but with a catch. He's not concerned about a lack of motivation in general. 
He's concerned about a lack of the proper motivation. In other words, the Tanya is written, um, and it's always important to differentiate between the, the, the style and presentation of ideas in a book versus the ideas themselves. The Tanya is written in a style and presentation to somebody who is mature enough to do the things that they know that they need to do. Um, somebody who has a knowledge of what Torah mitzvahs basically says. Um, someone who more or less believes in, someone who believes in God. Um, and the notion of observing the commandments because God said so, and you generally, is a, it's not a good idea to go against God considering that he runs the world and there's this concept of reward and punishment, is for them more or less a given. So the question is not, am I motivated to do the mitzvahs? The question is, are my motivations the kinds of things which are the proper motivations from the Hasidic point of view? Are they motivations which actually bring to a more integrated connection between myself, God, my spiritual side, my physical side coming all together? To put this in, in other words, the concern is, am I able to um, have the motivations that I'm doing the Torah mitzvahs in order to be closer to God, out of service of God? Or are the motivations ulterior motives? Okay? So I'm going to be very blunt about this. It is true in Tanya you will find ideas that may help you um, keep mitzvahs. But as a general rule, if you were to come and say, where in the Tanya does it, does it tell me um, how to like, do a better job of keeping this mitzvah? The, the general thing is the Tanya doesn't directly address that. Because like if you were to come if you were to come to me and ask me like how do I do a better job of like I don't know being more organized with the dishes right getting to work on time my answer is I mean it's a kind of a basic life skill right you know I mean maybe I have the answers maybe I don't have answers it's a basic life skill right it's nothing unique to those particular activities right if it's important to put on film it's important to make brachas so then you know how do you develop those habits right if you don't know what to do there's a code of Jewish law go learn it right if um, you're having really difficult in a way that's not age appropriate managing life skills, well then maybe you need some you know, assistance for that, right? Um, if, a person's, if a person's saying, well, I don't know if I believe in God, I don't believe in the truth of the Torah, all of those things are legitimate questions for a person to have, but the Tanya's written, again, the way, again, the way it's written is it's written to a person who's seeking to have the proper motivations in their Judaism not someone who's questioning the, 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 the importance of Judaism overall. So again, not that you won't find ideas that could be relevant, but that's not the style in which it's written. It's written for basically much more, if you were to use an analogy, much for like a married couple coming to a marriage counselor and saying, we're married, you know, we're not getting divorced anytime soon, like we're managing, but we feel like we're not really connecting. We feel like we're living parallel lives. We feel like we're just, we're going through the motions. We're doing what needs to get done and something isn't clicking and there's an estrangement developing, okay? And it's that specific issue, right? How does the, the emotional side of a person um, connect properly to Hashem and to the Torah and to the mitzvahs in a way that is going to move towards the Hasidic ideal rather than, God forbid, away from it? That's kind of the, kind of, that's kind of the question specifically the entire Tanya is centered around, okay? Um, and he centers around the following verse. The verse um, says that this thing, meaning Judaism, is very close to you, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the emphasis here is, is that 
it's close, it's accessible even in your heart. That it's not a matter of just complying and doing, that having the right attitude, the right feeling, the right motivation is something that is accessible, is available, is within your power. And the entire book is to explain how that's possible. And, the, and with, with the focus of that, if it's really within your power, it's something that you can be educated, you can be shown how to approach it, take responsibility for yourself, not wait for it to kind of be bestowed upon you by some mystical experience. Okay. The second thing to know about this is that the Alter Rebbe takes a principled position that there is no shortcuts. Okay. Um, there's a, a Mishnah which says, Lufum Tsara Agra. Lufum Tsara Agra is Aramaic for according to the pain is the gain. Um, which I think is better than the phrase no pain, no gain. Because no pain, no gain means you pay a little bit of pain and then you can get a lot of gain. But Lufum Tsara Agra means that it's proportional. You want more gain, there's more pain. Meaning, there's no shortcuts. If it sounds too good to be true, if it sounds too easy, then it probably is. On the other hand, if you're really putting in the work, right, assuming you're not doing something stupid like trying to run through a wall, but if you're really putting in the work, then you're actually going to get somewhere. And he calls there for the entire Tanya what he calls the long, short road. This is based on a story in the Gemara where there was a rabbi who was traveling and there was a fork in the road and he asked which way to the city. And there was a child um, who was quite precocious, and the child says, well, this way is short and long, and this way is long and short. So he took the short way, and he gets to the city, but he couldn't get into the city because there was an orchard. He couldn't trespass. So he came back and said, you said this way was short? And the child says, yes, but didn't I tell you it was long? Meaning, you didn't have to do a lot of work, but you didn't get where you want to go. And so he went around the other way, which was very long, but he found the city gates and was able to go in. And so the idea is that there are shorter ways that create some of the effects of actually dealing with this issue, but don't actually directly deal with this issue. Okay? If you want to think about it in the kind of a medical context, there's a difference between treating something versus curing something. Curing something means you actually have to deal with what's the underlying issue and solve it, and treating something is dealing with the symptoms of that and making them go away or at least less painful. Okay? So everything in the Tanya is a kind of a long-term approach to things. Even the things that are supposed to be like, oh, this really quick, and you could do this at any time, they're part of an integrated long-term approach to living, not like a quick fix or a life hack. Okay? Now, broadly speaking, there's a few ideas we need to know before we start chapter 18. That's about the structure of the book. <clears throat> of you know, the, I, the way we're going to think about these ideas. The first thing that we need to know is that the Alter Rebbe introduces what he calls um, a Bainini, which is a kind of the ideal personality type. So remember what I said about earlier about ideals? Okay. People very often learn Tanya and they think the goal is to be a Bainini, like somehow you get to be a Bainini, whatever a Bainini is, and then like, you get a certificate and the confetti pops out and like, you achieved and now success. And like, no. A bainini, and again, a bainini is a technical term, so I'm not even going to bother translating. It comes from the word to mean in between. So like if you go order a coffee and there's more than one size, so you have in Hebrew you have the gadol and you have the katan. And what's a medium coffee? A bainini. Right, yeah, that's modern. It's just all it means. Right? Anytime you're referring to anything in the middle. Um, 
So a Benini stems from a very interesting fact about Jewish people, which is that they have two souls. And these souls are in conflict. One is called the godly soul, one is called the animal soul. And when you have a conflict, you have three possibilities. Possibly number one is the good guy wins. I know, I made it as if the conflict is between good and evil, but in this case, it really is. So one is that the good guy wins. What's the other possibility? The bad guy. The bad guy wins. What's the third possibility? They're fighting. They're fighting. Okay. So now what happens if they're fighting? What ends up happening? If two sides are fighting and nobody wins, what ends up happening? Can think of how this would play out. I would say they both feel weak, fighting and winning. Well, let's let's not think of it physically. Although the physical point is, is valid, Valter gets that into kind of twenty six that you can get tired out from fighting. But but let's like let's just imagine there's two sides. They're fighting, whether it's physically or it's a war or it's in business or emotionally, whatever. But there's a the conflict is ongoing. Third party's gonna have to come. No. Yeah, just, just between the two of them. Fighting. What? What? Yeah, there's a draw There's a. Well. Uh, well so, so you can have a situation where. You have a situation where you have. You have a situation is eventually you settle into a kind of an equilibrium, a kind of a pattern where each side plays to their strengths. Which is essentially, you know, the fuzzy area between a draw and a ceasefire and a cold war. These all have the same kind of characteristic, which is what? Nobody wins, but everybody has their strengths. And so what ends up happening is that you play to your strengths until you meet resistance to the point that you can't anymore, and then kind of people settle into that pattern that kind of continues and keeps going on. That happens sometimes in relationships. It's happened sometimes, you know, it's how business competition works, right? You have two companies during competition, right? What ends up happening? Sometimes one company goes bankrupt, right? Or the one company buys the other company out. But usually what ends up happening is each one plays their strengths, takes their part of their share of the market, and then until something changes the equilibrium, that's more or less what happens. So there's still the conflict competition, right? But everybody's playing to their strengths. And so you kind of like carve out where's your territory, where's my territory, and there's friction, but there's a kind of stability achieved. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, like... One thing that, like, for instance, in military strategy, um, not every time do you win a battle or you win a war because to win really means that the other side acknowledges that they've lost. That's really what defines winning. You know, if you have an artificial thing like a game, like you can set aside ahead of time, like what are the rules? Like in chess, like what's called checkmate. But like in, in a real life conflict, at what point has the conflict been won Right, such that one side has defeated the others. When the defeated side acknowledges that they've been defeated, right? They stop. They stop fighting. You know, if you think in business, you know, when you decide to sell out to your competitor, right, or you go bankrupt, like you're done. Right? But if neither side gives up, right, then eventually they each find their strong points. They each find where there's where's their domain where they can succeed, and then they kind of like have this kind of tense. Stability, that's basically what it is. Okay. So the term for a person whose godly soul has defeated the animal soul is called a tzaddik, which literally means a righteous person. 
The term tzaddik can be used to describe many things. In the context of Tanya, we're describing the fact that the godly soul has succeeded in defeating the animal soul, which means who has acknowledged that the godly soul has won? The animal soul, right? Because defeat has, if you've been defeated, you have to acknowledge the defeat, otherwise you keep fighting. Well, then you have the opposite, which would be called a Russia. What would be a Russia? What? The bad guy wins. So who has to acknowledge the defeat there? The godly soul. If the godly soul acknowledges defeat, then by default, the other side has won. So what's a Benini then? Neither side wins. So what ends up happening is you create this kind of tense equilibrium where each side plays to their strengths. Now, what does that look like? <coughs> what? Not necessarily. Okay, this is one of the big myths, is that it doesn't always look like a constant fight. Again, think about... Um, Let's use a business example. Um, there's a store called Walmart. You've heard of Walmart? Okay. Is Walmart the only place that you can go shopping in the United States? To Now, Walmart keeps trying to like take over 100% of the retail market, right? Now, are there certain things that Walmart is just not going to be good at? For instance, Walmart is going to have a very hard time um, opening up... Um, a little tiny store in an in a, in a urban center, right? So, and is there a market for such things, right? And so some other business with other business models gonna be successful there? Does that mean those, those, so they're in a kind of competition, but because each one's business model has a different strength, they end up taking different parts of the market. Will there be areas where the conflict really, right? There's gray where the conflict, but, but sometimes the, the conflict is kind of like, a, it's a cold war, it's kind of a draw. A Bainini's life is not constant struggle and constant, like, it, it's, it's, it's a tense equilibrium, sometimes an all-out battle, sometimes a cold war, right? But, but, the, but it's very, gonna be very wrong and misleading to think of a Bainini as like constantly like at war with himself. In fact, going back to how we started, what was the approach of Hasidus? as opposed to, say, Musr and Chakir. What was the key idea there? Anyone remember that, beginning of the class? Right, and why is that so important? What was the theological underpinning of that? We've got creative physicality to serve. Slightly different. It's that God is one, and therefore there should be unity. Right? So does it make sense that the Hasidic approach is meant to emphasize the inner conflict and how it's irreconcilable and there's nothing you can do about that? Right? The whole Hasidic idea is to create a kind of unity, right? To create a kind of cohesiveness that reflects the unity of God. So the trick with the Bainini is that the Bainini starts to see the conflict or relates to the conflict, and this is going to be later chapters that gets into this more detail, that the conflict between the godly soul and the animal soul is actually a kind of a constructive energy. It's not, you know, they're, 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 if you want to use the, this, where the business analogy is actually a good analogy. The fact that there's competition between companies, between businesses, is not just a negative thing. Um, what does that competition do? Other than mean that, you, what? To do what? Be better. To be better, to innovate, right? 
right? There's a basic A, right? right? This is one of the reasons why when you have one company controlling everything, things kind of stagnate. So I don't mean to say it's exactly the same thing, but the idea is, and this is me discussed later on in chapters 27 and, 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 and other chapters, that being a Bainani is not a secondary thing. It's not, well, it's, it's good enough. There is something actually very profound about, about um, this kind of constructive tension. And the minute that that tension goes away because one side has defeated the other, something is actually lost. Um, the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, actually said that even a tzaddik should strive to find areas in their life where they can, they can embody the Bainani personality type um, because it actually has something advantageous to it. Okay? The ability to integrate conflicting opposites actually brings about a kind of a deeper unity. Okay? So it's not like, oh, it's, you're constantly at war with yourself, you're constantly at the knife's edge. Not that a Bainani doesn't have that quality, but that's not the... If, if, I mean, and honestly, like if you really would believe that that's what the Bainani is, it would be very hard to get on board with the project. Like that's the ideal personality that's the kind of, that you're kind of trying, striving to emulate in your life, right? Honestly, do you want to live a life where you're on the knife's edge all the time of constant, like, nobody wants that. So it's about, yes, there's the conflict, but eventually kind of an equilibrium is reached where every side is playing to their strengths and something very profound and beautiful comes out of that, right? Um, now, what are the strengths of the godly soul and what are the strengths of the animal soul? So in the first 17 chapters of Tanya, <coughs> the strengths of the godly soul are in its ability to comprehend in a truly meaningful way the greatness of God and the fact that the, the, the fact that the godly soul is by nature a more rational and settled being. So one, the, 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 the godly soul has this ability to really appreciate, to really fathom the greatness of God in a way that actually moves the godly soul and is meaningful. And second, that the godly soul is a more rational being. What are the strengths of the animal soul? The strengths of the animal soul are that the animal soul feels very innate and very intense. Now, let's take those and play them to their kind of their maximum, okay? If you have one set of things in your life that are very innate, they come kind of effortlessly and they're very intense, but they're not very rational. And others, and something else, and, and a whole other set of things where, you, where it's more rational and it's profound and it's moving, how will that end up playing out if you, if you took each of those things to the max? So because the way God created human beings, the human being, the mind, is the more dominant feature over the heart, assuming that the mind is fully on board, and we spoke about this in previous class, that when your mind is conflicted, this doesn't play out. But when your mind is 100% in one thing, then you, that ends up having a great influence over your entire life, including your emotional life. What that would mean is that you have a person who in terms of their values, their ideals, their behavior, their personal convictions, 
their what matters to them in life would all be the godly soul. But they would still feel kind of intense kind of reactionary experiences from the animal soul that would be heavily curtailed. So what would that practically look like? A person whose values in life are connecting to Hashem and serving Hashem and nonetheless does feel um, in a very kind of reactionary way an urge to do something that is ungodly. But at the same time, it's, that urge feels very alien and very foreign and something that, that is very easy for them to contain. So if you made this kind of practically, this was what your, kind of your average religious Jew would be like about regarding like eating on Yom Kippur. Your average religious Jew on Yom Kippur, assuming that because they're religious and Yom Kippur is important to them, does that mean that they don't get hungry? So it's late in Yom Kippur, place like, um, you know, um, you know, further north where Yom Kippur really ends late so it's like it's 8 o'clock at night already you've got another hour to go to Yom Kippur and whatever the davening isn't speaking to you to right now and like you start thinking about food and you're hungry and you want to eat right and that feels very natural it feels very intense does that mean the average religious Jew is now like trying to stop themselves from eating they're holding their white like I can't eat I know how to eat or is it that they have a sense of who they are and who their life is and what their relationship with God and Torah, I mean, the whole thing, they're like, they're not eating. They're obviously not eating. They're hungry. They wish Yom Kippur would be over maybe, but they're not eating. Right? So that, that intense, um, nate feeling of hunger still finds expression in their experience, but doesn't really have any real direct influence in how they live their life. Not just, not behaviorally, not in their fantasy, like maybe I should break Yom Kippur. Um, And certainly not in terms of their aspirations. And the key to all of this is that, and this is what we discussed in the previous chapters, is that the, the person really spends and invests in contemplating the greatness of Hashem in a way that really does move them and builds a kind of clarity that allows the rational part of their, their soul to really exude that influence, they can live with these experiences of temptation and desire without being personally invested in them, kind of aloof from their own animalistic instincts. So they experience them, but they're not, they're not struggling with them. Okay? And at the same time, their, their, their values and their, 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 their emotions are to more or less degree, we spoke about this in previous chapters, are very much aligned with coming closer to Hashem through connecting to Him through Torah and mitzvahs. Okay. Um, the real struggle in that is to maintain that, right? to build that up through contemplation and to maintain it and to live with the integrity that's needed to maintain that. Right? That's kind of the, that's the, that's the difficulty, that's the struggle. The struggle is not to fight between the godly soul and the animal soul in terms of not giving the animal soul expression in sinful behavior, but kind of transcending that struggle to making the godly soul the real playing to its strengths. Okay? Um, and in that sense, the center of the life of the Bainini is the time they dedicate to contemplating the greatness and significance of Hashem in a way that's genuinely moving, genuinely um, significant to them in a way that, that, that 
has a, 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 a real effect on their, their attitude, their perspective going forward that changes the way they view their life in a holistic way. And as a result, no matter how intense the animal soul's experiences are and how innate they are, they seem just less of an issue. They seem, they, they, they kind of like a, you know, a mature parent with a child who's having a temper tantrum, right? It's annoying, it's unpleasant, but like you're not gonna like necessarily like run your life around making sure the child um, stops throwing their temper tantrum, right? They're, 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 they're five, six years old and you're a mature adult, right? And so that's kind of the feel of the Bainini. Okay. And obviously in that you have to understand how Torah and mitzvahs connects us to Hashem, how sinning disconnects from Hashem, what it means to develop love of Hashem, favor of Hashem. There's a lot of details in that, but that's the kind of overview of 17 chapters of Tanya. Okay. Now, what about a person who's struggling not to sin? Right? That maybe, well, maybe sinning is not such a bad thing. Yeah, Hashem, Torah, mitzvahs, connected is all good. But on the other hand, you know, God is not the end all and be all of everything. And they're dealing with that struggle. What kind of person is that? Is that a tzaddik? Someone whose godly soul has defeated the animal soul? Obviously not. That's not a bainani, right? So what kind of person is that? Russia. It's a Russia. Now, that's weird because you would think if I'm still on the fence about sinning or not, right, the godly soul hasn't been defeated. Um, so I like to illustrate this with the, with the following little analogy. Um, there's an art to interviewing people. Um, <clears throat> now you can, the, the goal of interviewing people for the most part is to get them to say interesting things, right? If they say boring things, then what's the point of interviewing them, right? Now, you might have a more specific agenda. You want to say interesting things. You want to say things specifically interesting things. Right? So you've kind of adversarial interviewing, like might happen in a court, or you know, depending on the politics of the interview and interviewing in, in the political sphere, right? So imagine the, the, the person doing the interviewing asks the person being interviewed, um, so when did you start embezzling money from your company? Now, how is the person supposed to answer that question? Assuming that they're not embezzling or wanted to, right? You see, you, like, you already, like you, you already have a problem, right? Because you can start off, you can, you, if you answer the question, you're admitting to embezzling. If you say, well, if you, if, you, if you don't answer the question, right, then you make it about how you're being uncooperative, right? You can start attacking the interview, right? It, it's a tricky thing to figure out how not to fall into, like, a defensive position if that's the question you're being asked, right? Okay, it's also an art to know how to be interviewed. Okay. Um, people like train for this, like, it's a skill. How do you know that the godly soul has, in a certain sense, given up? When the godly soul allows the person to treat the animal soul as a legitimate point of view that it needs to contend with. Because let's think about it for a second. Imagine you're standing on the side and you're not... Right? Imagine you have God and some random person having a debate. Okay? Does that sound like a, a, a legitimate... You've got the creator of reality, right? 
and a creature who's been around for X number of decades and has a very limited understanding of reality. Does that sound like that's a legitimate disagreement? There's legitimately here two sides to the question. I mean, what exactly is a human being going to say to God that God didn't already take into consideration? It's a silly debate to have between God and a human being. So how could the human being get into a debate with God without feeling that it's utterly ridiculous? What would the human being have to do? The human being would have to disregard the fact that God is God. We, we tend to think of God very often as like a supersized human being. God is like a person, just smarter. God is like a person, just older. And so, okay, I can disagree with my parents, I can disagree with my grandparents, I can disagree with the rabbi, I can disagree with God. But like, if you, like, what exactly are you going to say that God didn't already conceive of considering he created reality, right? He created you. He, create, he created your thought processes before you have them. Just questions of free will aside for right now. It's a little bit ridiculous. There's a book in, in the Tanakh called the Book of Job. And the Book of Job, um, you have a man named Job, and Job suffers, and eventually gets angry with God. And in a very straightforward little reading of the book, um, God responds. Does anyone know what God's response is when Job complains about his suffering? God's response, it's very poetic, but God's basic response is, I'm God. Why do you expect to be able to understand me? Why do you think you're entitled to have an opinion about what I'm doing? And what is Job's response to that? You're right. Not, I'm happy about the suffering, just there's kind of this kind of arrogance of presuming that that, that we're operating as equals, that there's even something open for discussion. Now, that doesn't address the emotional qualms of suffering, right? That, 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 there's a lot of commentaries deal with that, or maybe it does, depending on the person. But certainly from like just on, 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 a, on, a, on a theological point of view, it's not, an, it, it's, not a, it's not a meeting of equals. So now, if the godly soul were to present itself with the full majesty of what it is to be godly, would it feel like to the person that the animal soul is a legitimate counterpoint? It doesn't feel, right? In other words, what, what makes, in a certain sense, the godly soul is, has, has given up really putting in the effort to say, wait a minute, no, I'm godly. I have a godly perspective. And given that, like the considerations the animal soul is bringing up are not, they don't carry any weight. And the minute a person really does feel that the animal soul is a legitimate counterpoint to the godly soul, that means they've lost some sense of the godliness of the godly soul. In that sense, the godly soul has capitulated, has given up. Okay? It's, in words, once, you're playing the, once you're playing the interviewer's game, you've kind of already lost. Once you're playing the animal soul's game, you've already lost. And so there's an idea in Hasidus, the, the mere thought back and forth, should I sin, shouldn't I sin, well, maybe yes, maybe no, means the animal soul is already running the show. And then really honestly, what's usually happening at that point is not a question of should I sin or should I not sin because sinning will disconnect me from God. It's like, which will make me feel worse? Will I feel worse not sinning or will I feel worse sinning? And both of those sides are really speaking the language of the animal soul. The animal soul doesn't, so it's like on the one hand, the animal's like, I don't want to suffer. 
and not sinning will feel bad because I really enjoy the sinning. On the other hand, the feeling of guilt afterwards will also feel pretty bad. So which is worse? But like, you're not even, the godly soul doesn't really even have a voice. Its voice has been usurped. Okay? And so what's very important is we're going to go forward. We're going to learn in chapter 18 a whole different approach to what it is to be a baini, a whole different style of being a baini. It's important to remember that a baini is not somebody who's like on the fence. Maybe I should sin, maybe I shouldn't sin. It's, there's a holistic way of living their life, which on the one hand, the animal soul hasn't given up, but on the other hand, the godly soul is playing fully to its strengths. And the minute a person's back and forth, should I, shouldn't I, mm-mm, the, the godly soul isn't playing to its strengths anymore. The godly soul isn't really showing up. Its voice is being usurped, and the animal soul is kind of the one running the internal dialogue. Yeah. So in this ideal state, the animal soul doesn't ever have a voice? Like- it has a voice, but it's like a, it's it's like yeah, it, 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 it it has a voice, but it seems silly. Right? In other words, it's like like the voice of "I'm hungry on Yom Kippur." It's like yes, I'm hungry on Yom Kippur, and like so, I mean, like uh, it's Yom Kippur. Like there's not a discussion here, right? And the, the struggle of the Baini is going to be maintaining that kind of unstable equilibrium. And we're going to be learning starting in chapter 18 and going all the way to chapter 25, which, you know, we'll finish in, what, 25 years, um, is an entirely different approach that does not center around contemplating the greatness of God, playing to a totally different strength of the godly soul, a strength that's actually much deeper and more accessible. In other words, it's, it's both... Easier than the approach that we're going to that the first nineteen cha- the first seventeen chapters have, and it's also more profound, um, but it, it it lacks something as well, which we'll talk about as we move forward. Um, but it's also important to remember this is not a quick fix approach. It's still an approach that takes a person needs to cultivate and integrate um, into their life. It's not something oh I learned this idea and I'm going to think these thoughts and then magically I will like solve my internal conflicts. Okay. So, again, the Bainini is a person who the godly soul is showing up and playing to its strengths. The animal soul is playing to its strengths, but the animal soul is actually at a disadvantage if, if everybody's playing their strengths. And so the, that equilibrium means the animal soul has a voice, but it doesn't really, it's not taken that seriously inside the person. And the first way to do that is by cultivating the godly soul's ability to really know God, really appreciate his greatness, and having that really penetrate our rational mind fully and deeply. And the next one we're going to learn is going to be an entirely different approach, playing onto different strengths of the godly soul. Okay? And that's ultimately going to come back to that, not just we're doing the mitzvahs, but we're doing them with the right reasons, with the right motivations to get to that kind of integrated Hasidic um, life that we started the class with. Good? Okay, tomorrow we're going to start the actual text, and then Wednesday's questions and answers. Please hold on to your sheets. Thank you. Someone had a question.